0: This episode of the Behind the Shield podcast is brought to you by 5.11 Tactical, a company that I've used for well over a decade and they are offering you a 15% discount on every order and I will tell you that code in just a moment but I want to do another product highlight and I can testify as with the other ones through personal experience. I wore a 5.11 uniform way back when I worked for Anaheim Fire in California, so we're talking 13 years ago. And I know for a fact that some of my brothers and sisters I work with still wear some of the clothes that they were given when I was hired there. So some of the job shirts, jackets, and this really kind of resonated with me because I realized so many of the departments I've worked at, there are men and women with lockers crammed with old worn frayed uniform. And that really represents wasted budget. So to have uniforms with durability means that you don't have to purchase them as often. Now you can apply that budget elsewhere. Another area they've really focused on is redesigning their women's first responder uniforms. I am a skinny six foot tall man and... Some of these uniforms I'm issued literally hang off me like a trash bag. And I can imagine it's even worse being a female first responder. So they have really taken that into account and redesigned the cuts. So they're far more flattering to the female firefighter, first responder, medic, etc. On top of that, several departments I work for have gone from job shirts to polo shirts. 5.11 has those. And then to underline a product I've already talked about, They have the footwear. I wore the CST slip-on boot for a long time from 5.11. And now the Norris sneaker that you've heard me talk about is a lightweight duty boot that puts far less pressure on the ankles and knees, the back, etc. So as I mentioned before, they are offering you guys a continuous 15% discount. And all you have to do is use the code SHIELD at checkout at 511tactical.com. So once again, code SHIELD at 511tactical.com. Welcome to episode 279 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I am very excited to bring on the show a fellow Brit, James Elliott. James is a military veteran and is also now one of the key figures in a brand new branch in the British Army known as the Resilience Branch. So we discussed James's very powerful early life um, and the effects of that on his own personal journey, his time deployed overseas, and then how he transitioned as a resilience coach in this brand new position that they created. So a great, great conversation. Before we get to that, as I say, every single episode for a very strong reason Please take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on and subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback and then leave a rating. Every single five-star rating we get makes us more and more visible for people that need to hear these great guests that we have. And then in addition, take social media and share. Share these incredible episodes, word of mouth, email, social media, whatever is the best platform for you. But get these men and women's stories to the people on planet Earth that need to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you James Elliott. Enjoy. James, I want to start by saying thank you so much for coming on the Behind the Show podcast.
1: Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. Well, where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: Uh, so, at the moment, I am just outside of Oxford in the United Kingdom. All right. Now, were you born there? Uh, I wasn't, no. So, interestingly enough, I was I was born in London, but um, I, I wasn't there particularly long. I've sort of lived pretty much all around the country, really, um, and uh, I sort of settled in uh uh, well, I haven't really settled anywhere, to be honest. I spent sort of most of my teenage life in this small town just outside of Oxford. But yeah, well, I've I've lived all over, really, all over, all over God's country, which is obviously England. <laughs> lived, all, <laughs> lived all around there. Um, yeah, beautiful place.
0: Brilliant. All right. So I'd like to start at the very beginning. So, what was your family unit like? What did your parents do? And how many
1: siblings did you have? Oh, um, so my family, my my sort of childhood is uh is a. Um, which unfortunately is, is not an uh, unusual story, but quite a nuclear family. Um, so I sort of lived with my mum and, and a guy who I refer to as my, my biological dad. So my, my biological dad went to prison when I was 13. So he was, um, he was, a, he was a drug dealer. Um, what he actually did was he, uh, he smuggled in um, drugs from uh, from Belgium, from Ustend in Belgium, into the country, and uh, he then, under the guise of a luxury chocolates company, and he'd sort of then sell this and move this on um, around around the country, uh, mainly to sort of the, the, the top end hotels, which would be buying these luxury chocolates, um, and indeed with it the drugs, and they would distribute down to their clientele. That's kind of how the the system worked. Um, so, like. Like all people in that world, that world of organized crime, uh, movies, mainly sort of Martin Scorsese, sort of painted this really glamorous picture. In fact, no, Martin Scorsese tends to paint the more human side of it, but a lot of movies people think, think gangland and think gangsters and think that it's all glamorous, and there's certainly a lot of money, but um, it's certainly not a bed of roses, and um, like all drug dealers who take a huge amount of their own supply, he became sort of increasingly volatile as a child, and... Sort of into my early teenage years, became uh, increasingly uh, abusive, and that abuse was sort of the whole range of it of of abuse and sort of the uh, the things that you have to sort of manage. And you know, like almost twenty years after it all, kind of really was 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 really bad. I, I find myself still sitting down and having to talk to people about it. Um, so yeah. And I went, eventually he, he, he went to prison. He was caught, uh, several sort of million quids worth of the stuff. Uh, he went to prison for a long time and I went to sort of and live full time with my, my mom and my, my stepdad who I, who I call dad because he, he massively stepped into that role. Um, my sister and my mom had left like years, years before I think I was five when my mom, uh, left with my, uh, with my sister. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I came to go live with with my mum, with my mum, my sister, um, her her new fella, but this great guy who, who I now call my dad, and I've called my dad since my sort of mid-teens, um, and and his his two little boys, um, and we yeah, so moved to this uh this little house just outside of Oxford to live sort of permanently with them, full time with them, and uh, and yeah, uh, really really difficult family relations. Then um, everyone was obviously. Carrying trauma, uh, I think. I think my sister was affected massively. Um, um, I was obviously affected massively by sort of everything that would that, that had gone on, and, and my uh, my two stepbrothers had their own um, problems as well. Um, so sort of as we find it now, you know, I, I, I don't I haven't spoken to my sister in in sort of well, eleven years. I haven't spoken to her in about 11 years um I, I mean i hope she's well uh she you know she doesn't she doesn't want anything to do with the family and, and sort of same to be said for my two stepbrothers i speak to the, the youngest one every now and then messages me but i certainly don't speak to uh either the other two i i, I keep a relationship going with my uh my mom and my uh, and, and dad and and uh you know i absolutely cannot fault either of them whatsoever as grandparents you know they are all over it with with my little girl, and uh, they've provided so much for her that is um, absolutely unbelievable. But it's a very difficult subject, I think, um, for a lot of people. And, and the reason why I say it's unfortunate, but it's not uncommon, is it's sort of obviously I joined the army at, at 18 years of age. I left school at sort of 16 and didn't didn't really leave school with much at all. And it was that: uh, Are you going to work, or are you going into uh, full-time education? Well, I'm going into full-time education. I'm going into. I'm going into work. Sorry, because full-time education wasn't really uh, much of an option. And it was like, okay, then go get a job, get out. Um, so I did, and I left, and I worked various crap jobs. Really working, sort of, labouring on building sites, plasterer, labourer. Um, just I, I sleep rough sometimes. You know, get back on building sites and sleep there, or I. Staying, I I wound up actually renting a a sofa off of uh, off of someone and and working just loads of jobs until I decided to join the army and and so I I think it was a very very difficult um, period, my my sort of childhood and teenage years, my adolescence. You know, I never really felt um, like I I'd ever and still you know still don't feel completely over all the, the sort of really dark aspects of the abuse that was going on and and what was going on at home. And actually, that was sort of the brilliant thing about the British Army, was that it, it, it offered me that sort of family unit that I, I had never had before. And, 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 and I look back on it now, and and it seems strange to say, but somebody screaming and shouting at me to, to get dressed and to get fed, you know, that, that to me was, was affection. That to me was love, because I'd never had that in my life before. So somebody, you know, uh, particularly like such a dominant male figure, demanding all these things for me that's actually teaching you really valuable life lessons it's something that i've not had so to have that was um was amazing and and um and i think that's why i brought so much into life as a as a young soldier i i literally you know the army had 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 all intents and purposes had, had completely adopted me and I, I fell in love with with the process and the system um but yeah you know it's, it's a real shame that that I think it tends to go sort of one of two ways. Trauma like that either unites the family or divides it. And, and definitely in our case, it, it is absolutely divided the family that people still really haven't recovered from it. So, yeah, I wish I had a nicer story.
0: No, but here's, here's the crazy thing. So your story lines up with so many other people I've had on the podcast, whether it's you know military, police, fire, medic. And I don't think society as a whole understands how many people have gone through trauma you know in their childhood and i think that our professions associated professions attract those people because then they want to become the protector they want to break that cycle they they, they want to you know stop the bullies as it were so what's interesting to me is it's it's honorable how people come from such a rough upbringing and do that but then as we're going to talk about later you know if we underestimate how much trauma is being brought through the door when you put on the uniform or put on the badge on your chest that is unaddressed, that then may manifest when you then start going into combat or seeing things on the streets um, as a first responder.
1: Yeah, it would be. I mean, I absolutely relate to the uh, the notion about being a protector and wanting to protect people. Like, I can definitely relate to that. But also, I think it'd be really interesting to see. And obviously, it's my job now, but it would be interesting to see who who does manage that trauma better. Who does does the because generally speaking, sort of, uh, and this is a generalisation massively, but you tend to find those with with a with a rough upbringing, they're the ones who make absolutely outstanding soldiers, and and uh, and as I'm sure as uh, are outstanding firefighters, or outstanding police officers, because they have that resilience instilled from them as a child. But also then there's the stress bucket, which is when it's crossed that line of developing an individual's resilience, and it's become trauma that weighs them down. Um, so who does make, who, who 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 manages that stress of the uniform life better? Is it the rough upbringing or is it the nurtured upbringing? Because I think obviously the extremities of both of those, but but that would be quite interesting to see. But then almost impossible to sort of accurately carry out that experiment or that study because what is, everything is perspective. So what is trauma? What is a rough childhood? What is a nurtured childhood, you know? Be interesting
0: to see though yeah yeah and i think from from the you know the the somewhat stable background which i definitely had i mean i had a you know rough as far as hard work exposure i grew up on a farm you know i, I i'd go to school tired and they'd be like oh he must be playing video games like no i was up at three in the morning lambing sheep you know what i mean so um but i think that if you have that you can definitely forge a great soldier policeman firefighter On the drill ground and through, you know, your training. And I think the same with the, you know, the person with the rough upbringing, the forging almost needs to be at the front door also, um, you know, dealing with that trauma. So I've talked recently about taking the money that we spend on psychological testing with us and, and polygraph tests and things like that and putting it into counseling at the front door all right you know you want these 20 people so let's give them five weeks of counseling you know one one day a week while we're putting them through you know training orientation whatever it is so they can offload that trauma develop a relationship with a counselor so then you take off all the bad parts of that upbringing or you at least mitigate some of them and now you get to glean all the good parts which is the resilience and you know some of the 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 physical um attributes that you need as well
1: that is interesting because because i think I think the important thing to point to point out there, first of all, that would be incredible. Uh, but as well, I think the important thing to, to note there would be just because a person has a, a robust upbringing it doesn't mean they've not had a nurtured upbringing. So we we have a, a video that I play about the U.S. Navy SEALs uh, when, when I'm think my chapter, and I know that we're going to move on to what it is that I teach. Um, but we we have this video that we play, and um, and the very sort of la- one of the sort of last things in it is is a psychologist saying why did they. I think he said a hundred and fifty pound farm boy from Nebraska smash US Navy SEAL selection and yet the Olympic athlete couldn't. Um, and that sort of always inspires quite a good topic of conversation. And 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 from you know, from what you were saying there, you know, like this this Nebraska school kid, this Nebraska farm kid, sorry, he he's constantly had this adversity, this stress, this difficulty thrown at him. Like I imagine life on a farm to be extremely difficult i've got a good friend who um who uh, his his whole family owned this dairy farm and he talks to me about his working day now how he's up at four o'clock in the morning and he's doing this and that and but what a ro-, but he is a robust individual and because everything every day is different and the stresses are different and the things you have to manage and cope with and deal with uh, are always different um, but he's very much loved and he's very much supported and nurtured by his mum and dad so he's sort of become this all-rounder you know he's a great guy he's like great to be around like he's always got time for other people he's very kind but he is also an extremely robust individual that and the fact that he's you know i think he's six six foot seven about 18 stone you know he, he looks like shrek but he is a lovely guy, you know. And so it's just, I think, yeah, it would be wonderful to have that balance between uh, robustness and, and and nurturing, so that you get the the quality byproduct of that of of a of a tough, resilient individual without any of the stress.
0: Yeah, it's like that that saying: "Don't mistake my kindness for weakness." You know, you got to have a kind, compassionate child, but you have also got to give him enough physical at least hardship where you know they're they're able to step in and be the protector otherwise they're they're just going to be useless
1: yeah exactly that yeah
0: right well going back to your to your dad just for a moment um i'm just curious and then we'll definitely move on when so you've got these 13 years leading up to it you know like you said there's there's this spiraling um abuse and obviously fear for you as a young child yeah what was that moment like for you when he was incarcerated was there relief that was there
1: no no it wasn't and it it, it came up in uh in conversation a few months ago and i i didn't feel relief i felt guilt i felt sort of devastation because he was still my 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 dad you know still my biological dad and i still i still loved him um so it was really difficult set of emotions to manage as a child because i knew what was going on wasn't okay and i would known for about sort of six years that this isn't normal like this shouldn't be happening and uh, what was going on behind closed doors but I but when he went away I wasn't relieved I was devastated um, and I felt I felt guilt and I felt um, I felt like it was my fault and I felt that um, this sort of shame and I think what sort of one of the biggest causes of, of, of problems that I had from it was the fact that I felt like I wasn't enough like why couldn't I stop him doing what he was doing? You know, you hear all these stories about people having kids and it absolutely changed their life and, and changing who they are and how they perceive the world. But I kind of wondered why I wasn't enough to make him stop doing first of all, what he was doing to me, but also what he was doing, you know, in it, you know, what he chose to do for a profession. Like why why couldn't I stop that? Why was I not enough? And and I you know, it's only quite recently that I realised that that a lot of my problems was the fact that I was carrying that around. Like why was I not good enough? Um, uh, to, to stop everything that was going on. So, yeah, it was really difficult, a really, really um, massive amount of mixed emotions. And I remember my mum my being so relieved and, like, so happy. And then, you know, uh, it was splashed all over the papers. So everybody at, at schools and stuff knew sort of what had gone on and what was going on at home. And, and uh, I just, I remember the shame. I remember the embarrassment. I remember the guilt. Um, and, it you know, really raw for a long time um and, and sort of people but you know at that age at thirteen years old no one's reading the papers at, at school at that age. But um but that means that then that people's parents had read it and then told their kids. So then these kids are coming into school and everyone's asking about, you know, the son of the drug dealer, you know, type thing and, and uh yeah, when he went away there was no relief. that's which is I don't know whether or not that's normal. Who knows what normal is but but definitely, there was no relief there for me. I, I, I felt, I felt um, horrifying. And the embarrassment wasn't that he got, he got caught. The embarrassment was, was, was for me.
0: You know. Yeah, and it's interesting. The two words that come up a lot now, um, the, the, uh, under the umbrella of moral injury. So we had the PTSD. You know, and then everyone's like, well, clinically, that's you know being triggered, and you hear a loud noise, and you hide under a table, and we're like, well, what about this other group of people that? aren't like that but they're still you know chronically depressed and were once you know vibrant young men and women and now they're the shell of what you know who they are what's going on with them and so that moral injury is kind of a definition i think that encompasses everything else and guilt and shame are the ones that come up over and over and over again especially with us and i'm sure with the military as well the the inability to save whether it was a police officer not able to stop someone who did something horrific or whether it's us not be able to save someone that we're trying to, you know, resuscitate. And, and though I had no idea kind of how powerful and how cancerous guilt and shame actually were.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I deal with a, uh, every now and then we have, we have guys and, and, and guilt. I think guilt is, is, is one of the worst emotions that there are. Guilt, guilt can really rot people from the inside out because it, it's so hard because it is such a perspective and it's so, it is you absolutely blaming you. And yet the whole outside world can say, it's not your fault. You know, like what, what happened in, in, in my childhood there? That, that's not my fault. But I mean, for sort of 15 years, I absolutely believed that it were. So that's, you know, that's tough. It's tough for, for, for people to, to sort of manage. Um, so yeah, guilt, guilt, guilt and shame are, are disgusting emotions. They really are. Yeah. True.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, then you obviously went into a profession that requires a high level of of you know physical excellence, as it were. Were you a sportsman when you were younger?
1: Very much so. Very much into my rugby. Very much into sort of any sort of physical sport, boxing, rugby, um, pumping iron. Absolutely loved it. And and I will always credit my. Uh, rugby club of, of Whitney Rugby Club of keeping me on the straight and narrow because I, I, if it wasn't for that club and what that club has done for me, um, I, I it probably would have been a very difficult story for me. Like some really really outstanding role models there, some really really outstanding people who are still I'm still really close to now. The coaches, what I sort of moved into playing senior rugby. So we didn't do a coaching, team. We went at 16 into the uh, into the seniors. And sort of um, playing, sort of you know, the majority of my peer group sort of went, you know, we all went twos and threes, um, and and being sort of you know, taken under the wing of one of the senior guys there, uh, one of them who was a, who's an ex royal, uh, and he sort of pushed me massively towards joining the army, and um, and sort of really it was like it would be good for you, and and these guys would you know help find me help help me find work, give me a give me a roof over my head, make sure that I had some hot food in me, and. And a brew, and we just, you know, if I wasn't at training, they'd want to know why I wasn't at training and, and sort of keep it on top of me. And, and you know, I, I, I can't recommend it enough for sort of young, lost uh, individuals um, who um, aren't really sure what they're doing with their lives to be involved in a sports club because that sense of purpose, that camaraderie, that social support, that positive effect, that just having a great time with people. Um, who, are, who, are, who are really encouraging and supportive of you is, is brilliant and I think a lot of people in there um, didn't write me off as I'm sort of very used to at this sort of stage of my life is just being written off as a bit of a nightmare probably just going to find himself in prison soon as well and actually a lot of people there who did truly believe in me so um, yeah a, a great great rugby club a great place great people
0: Amazing as I've talked with uh, Sebastian Junger on here a couple of times who wrote the book Tribe Um, and and, um, I I talk about this over and over again but it's so pertinent like you know as a species we are you know tribal humans are definitely tribal and you know the first tribe for most people if they're lucky enough is going to be the family you know but if you're in a family that is broken like you were then obviously that rugby club sounds like they became the first tribe and then the British Army the second
1: yeah absolutely and and, um, I've had actually a lot to do with that rugby club over the years Um, I broke I broke we broke my, my rugby team and I broke both our world records at that club. So the same people who sort of backed me as a teenager and said, This kid's gonna be all right are the same people who stood at the sidelines and, and cheered as the as our you know, we went past the twenty four hour mark on our rugby sevens and then cheered again as we went past the twenty four hour mark on our on our rugby tens world records. You know, these people stood there and, and really, you know, I mean that, an amazing experience being eighteen and these people saying, Oh, congratulations, joining the army and then you go back, you know, and say, How are you getting on? Oh, I've just passed out into, Oh, well done, how are you getting on? Yeah, I've just passed P Company, I'm just off to my regiment. Oh, brilliant, you know, how are you getting on? Yeah, I've got my wings, or how are you getting on, you know, seeing them at these sort of pertinent points in my career, whenever I could, you know, being back on leave and, um, and putting my boots on and just seeing these people and the same people who really back me, you know, the same people who it kind of feels like I'm almost repaying that debt to them a little bit by saying, Thank you very much for your belief in me. I like to think that I have made something of myself. As I, you know, here I am breaking a world record for you, you know. So, um, yeah, that was that was that was such a, a lovely moment to be playing at that Rugby Cup.
0: Yeah, that's amazing because you know, you look at some of the kind of attitudes that we see in society, like for example, you know, if someone makes a mistake, well, let's lock them up. Now, there are some people out there that absolutely need to be put in a box away from society forever, there's no question about that, but you know, there's there's a large section of, of lesser crimes where. Again, I talk about this a lot. You know, what was their upbringing like? I mean, you could easily, like you said, have, have steered the opposite way as well. And and getting getting society to actually look around and mentor the people around them, be kind to the people around them. I, I've heard this on this podcast over and over again. There was one moment, one teacher, one neighbor, you know, whatever it was that that was it. That was a person that stepped up and changed that individual's life. And if they hadn't if they just kept their mouth shut and not bothered looking around for someone to help, that person may have gone a completely different way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that within our, I know we could go off on this tangent and go down this rabbit hole massively, but I think within the prison system that we, we, uh, we need, we need education is the key, right? Education is the key. I think it's solving 99% of the issues that we have in the modern world. And, and we need to be doing more to educate people throughout their adult lives. And and actually, you go to uh, you know you do find yourself in that situation, which is which is tragic. Um, you know, huge mistakes get made, and, and and people make terrible errors of judgment, and uh, they find themselves in prison. And rather than just sort of making it a revolving door policy where they're going to leave, they went into prison with nothing, they've left them even less. And so, really, the reality for them is go back to prison. You know, let you know, commit another crime, just try, just trying to get ahead. And actually, what we need to be doing is we need to be educating people both. You know, emotional education, so they can understand their emotions, the sources of them, and how to manage them better. But we also need to educate people, as in giving them civilian qualifications. Now you I don't know, you go away for a crime and, and you spend, you know, six months in, in in a prison cell like that. There should be no reason why we're letting them get bored. Why are we not educating these people so that they can return to society and find find a niche, find a role, find something that's going to give them that sense of purpose that 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 maybe that they lacked before. You know, you could. In theory you could go to prison you can leave and become a carpenter because you've, you know you've, you've done courses you've become qualified or you know whatever obviously there's huge complexities to that that we could go on all day but I do you know the, the, the punishment is is the time away um, the punishment is, is the sentence and actually then what you choose to do within that sentence um, there should be plenty of options opened up to those individuals so that they can sort of maximize that that, that time. Because at the end of the day they're they're being punished, they're away from their home, they're away from their families, and they've they've lost key aspects of
0: their freedoms. Yeah, yeah. I've had a, a guy, Tom Eberhardt. I talked about him multiple times on this, but uh he is the governor of a prison in um Oslo called Bastoy, and it's on an island, so just off Oslo. And they're they're prisoners. They've they've done things, anything up to murder, you know, and they uh so they lost their freedom. But they live in a community, a housing estate, basically. And the the prisoners live together, you know, in each house has X amount of prisoners. They live together, they cook, they clean, they go to work. They're like you said, they're learning trades because their philosophy is one day these people are going to leave this island and go back and live next to you and your family. Who do you want? The person that was locked in a cage who basically had to shank people to stay alive, you know, or... This other one where every morning they get to see the sun and the sky and they interact and, and they got it to the point where, and like I said, they were murderers on here. But again, they identified, is this a sociopath or was this someone that got into a street fight and ended up stabbing someone, didn't leave the house planning on murdering someone? You know what I mean? It was a more of a crime of passion um, and the the guards didn't even have any weapons. They hadn't had any attacks on the guards. I mean, it's just so polar opposite than what we see in much of of England and, and America, and when you take a step back, be- excuse me, when you take a step back and you look, are we looking to make these men and women better when they leave or worse? That's a simple question you have to ask, and I agree with you a hundred percent. We should be make, giving these people tools where they never need to turn to crime again. Of course, a small percentage will, but most people probably don't want to shit themselves every time the doorbell goes, wondering if it's the police.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, um- and And then, but then you know I mean, it's difficult because then there'll be people who say no, they've committed a crime and they should they should be in that cell and and, and it's a very, very difficult thing, but you know, I, I just think that you know if if you're going to lobby the government for something like this, it makes it makes economic sense. It makes sense, you know, everything uh, these days is wired towards money, but if you've got a man sat there, Putting in his funds costing thousands of thousands of pounds well then you don't want him to reoffend, so spend the money on educating him both emotion, emotionally and and in skills, so that when he leaves he is you know he is then fulfilling a role and actually these these amazing stories of people who have turned their lives around who've gone from 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 prison to prison to, to, to success because they've chosen to you know they they make great members of society and they make these they make these inspirational people that we were just talking about these neighbors these rugby players, these blokes in the gym, whatever it might be. These are the people who, who do change other people's lives because they, they've lived the story. Um, so it makes it makes more sense that we should be doing more to educate those in, in, in prison cells rather than leaving them to their own devices. You know, there's, there's an issue in certain British prisons about radicalisation because, you know, these poor people, you know, who go into prison, in and out of prison, they have, they've got nothing... Um, for them to fall back on no trade, no family, because you know so many families are so nuclear these days, and 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 then they, they they sort of return to prison and they become so so frustrated at the system that they find themselves getting radicalised. So you've got prisons where people are going in where they could potentially be educated in in in, in something and uh, where where they become so fulfilled in their in their adult lives when they leave the prison. But the reality is, is what they're being educated in is the wrong thing. They're being educated in there. In, uh, in radical um, uh, radical forms of Islam and, and that's that's then becoming a huge problem um, so you know yeah absolutely we need to do more to educate and, 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 and look after uh, those who have committed crimes because like you said the majority of people don't leave the house that day with the intention of committing a crime and, and stuff just happens
0: yeah um, yeah, exactly. And in the childhood as well. And I, I point this out as you get a room full of toddlers. They're not like hiding shanks in their diapers because they're already grooming themselves for prison. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that's a great insight. So thank you so much for that. So I want to transition to your career. So you, you find the army. So just going to lead us through the early years of of, uh, of that organization and what it did for you
1: um so yeah so i joined i joined the army in, in in 2006 i joined the uh the gunners and i went to um seven power rha um and uh sort of found myself in a fire support team attached to the three power battle group which which actually was absolutely fantastic um what an amazing battle group to be a part of what an amazing unit what an amazing fraternity to be a part of what an amazing um elitist unit um i'm, I'm a massive fan of 16 aerosol Assault game which is the uh um, the British Airborne Forces. I'm a massive, you know. Obviously, I'm going to be um, being a part of it for so long. to take great pride in, in my sort of maroon berry and, and everything attached to it. And I would I would say to um, to any and all young lads, you know, even if it's just for a four year spell, join the army because it, 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 it the world absolutely got opened up to me. And I, I don't think I'll ever be one of those people who who who, who snaked the institution that raised them because that's what it did it, it raised me it took me from this sort of very misguided very angry very sort of volatile and naive child and it turned me into the the man that I am today really because it's give the British Army has given me this incredible platform you know and I think I didn't leave 16 Airtop again until two 2016 so I did 10 years in that and in that time you know included included Herrick included uh, um, contingency airborne warfare included some amazing stuff, you know, some really, you know, tragic stuff, um, you know, with Herrick, but, but some really, um, really amazing things that I've got to do in my life. I think serving my country, um, in Afghanistan is, is something that I'm very proud of, but I'm also very proud of, sort of all the sporting opportunities that it has afforded me, um, from doing, I got to compete in the War at the Highland Games in front of the, the Royal Family, um, and I got to, um, just do so much, and I was part of, um, exercise C joax in 2015 where there was 3,000 blokes in the air. We did a, a night jumper, uh, sort of um, massive airborne insurgent with uh, with 82nd Airborne Division. And that was just absolutely incredible. Like I've, I've gone and I've, I've genuinely done everything that the army could offer me. And, and I would never have done any of the things that I've done if it wasn't for the British army, laying these things on for me to go and do. And um, I feel incredibly honoured to to have had the career that i've had and to have the opportunities i've had because i would never have had those opportunities before and yeah there's been trauma and yeah there's been massive lows but there's also been absolutely incredible highs in my life that has absolutely been afforded to me by the british army and, and everything that goes with it the friendships that i've made the people that i've met the experiences the life stories Everything that goes with it has been because of 16-hour assault brigade and my regiment's on power and I'm extremely
0: proud to say that. Brilliant. Well, I, I want to ask you a question that I ask a lot of the guests who have served. Um, we, you know, you, you hear back home, and I'm I'm a civilian, I'm a fireman, but I'm a civilian. I've never been a member of the military. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you have the whole political thing. Oh, we should have gone in there. We shouldn't have gone in there. But it seems like, Every single person had on here so far, there was a moment once they were on that combat deployment where regardless of the politics behind them being sent there, they saw things where they're like, well, this alone justifies me and my, my men and women being here at this point. Did you have any of those moments yourself?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think that um, sort of the 2010 period of of, of Helmand um, was, was sort of the opening really of the... Um, of, of the democratic process to that area, to, to Helmand, and, and to sort of introduce democracy and introduce a freedom to these people that they've never had before, um, is it will go down in a moment in their national history that that I was sort of a part of, and therefore, um, yeah, it, it does. And, and you and you would see, you know, the state of which some of these these innocent individuals would live, and you would think. Uh, this, we are bringing a stability and an infrastructure to this area that they absolutely you know, we, we are you, just by putting in a road just by putting in a hospital just by putting in a checkpoint that ensures stabilisation of that area I'm improving these people's lives tenfold and we don't really have an appreciation for that in Western society because you know we're frustrated when our roads have potholes and I, I totally understand why but, but they have nothing and and People don't understand. In this, a lot of people who haven't seen it don't understand what it means to have nothing. And so, when you are out there and you are providing a a, 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 essentially a public service to these people who have nothing, like absolutely nothing, and you're providing them a democratic process, you're ensuring that roads are being built, you're ensuring military stability within the area, you're ensuring of so many basic things. That these people would never have ever seen before, never ever witnessed before, and and you think, wow, yeah, yeah, we are doing the right thing. You know, we're we're providing um, medical cover. They've never had that. You know, this is a, a part of the world where if you know you, you would just die from infection. So all of a sudden, something like penicillin to them is is you know like mind blowing to to be bandaged. You know, I remember having a and a would come up to us of the Afghan National Army. Who, uh, we worked uh, extensively with and and, <laughs> and they would want a plaster. Because to them a plaster was 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 the miracle cure for everything. No, like they turn up you know in in a bad way and want a plaster. And you think, no mate, you need to go back to the field hospital in, in Cambastian. Like, no no and like the interpret would be like, no no he wants a plaster. And stick, stick on stick no, no different when we were it. six. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe like a little Batman one or something, stick that on him. And, and that would be, there. Yeah, they're fine now. Yeah, I've, got a really bad, I've got a really bad headache. Yeah, I'm not surprised. A really bad headache. Yeah, can I have a plaster? you are like, uh, okay. Like that. And you give them a plaster and to them. I'm, I'm, I remember our medic hates just being like, I'm running out of plasters. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Because they, they would just keep coming to for a plaster. You'd be like, no, mate, you know, you, you need emergency. No I need, no, I need a plaster. All right, okay, fine. Yeah, have a plaster. Because that's, you know, because that very basic thing of a plaster to them would blow their mind. But to us, that's just the plaster. What you want about? Like you know, if you had a cut or missing a limb, you 100% want you know. And ten doctors around you and surgeons and and uh, all the incredible incredible medical services being offered in, in Cambusium. But but no, they, they want plasters because they, because that very basic thing they've never had before. You know, so so yeah, I'd say you know people saying, "Oh, were we justified?" And you think about all the sort of stability, support and infrastructure that we supplied in an area that absolutely had nothing um, you think yeah like we we have exponentially improved the lives of these these people simply by being here uh, so yeah yeah absolutely and I tend not to get caught up in the politics of it as well um, mainly because I I just don't get it I just, I'm, I'm just not educated enough or qualified enough to start forming these really strong political opinions particularly about something as complicated as involvement in afghanistan i understand the legal and moral reasons behind why we fight but the sort of the political things that people have literally made careers out of talking about i i tend to avoid
0: (laughs) well that's why i ask people like you because you're the ones on the ground actually seeing it firsthand you know what i mean so it doesn't matter what some douche lord in a suit is saying you know the reasons were because he hasn't sent his kids out there he sent men and women like you you know what i mean so And for everyone listening, plaster in America is a band aid. Just a little translation. Oh yeah, <laughs> sorry.
1: Yeah, band aid. Yeah.
0: So we're just on that theme, though. Were there any, you know, some people obviously there was there was something they saw as well that was very pivotal for them. Some some atrocity. Was there anything that that kind of struck you as as horrific, or was it more that you were in there more of a stable time where you were able to to actually bring the solution now? Uh,
1: no, I think I think I think both. I think both both of those options are correct. So um I'll just I'll, I'll I'll get it out of the way I'll tear the band-aid off on, on that one so uh the plaster uh, on the, yeah the plaster <laughs> on the uh, on the 23rd of March 2011 we were working with the uh the Irish Guards um a very respectable unit um just outside Goresh and the uh the OC and his signal alliance sergeant Mark Bergen were killed and um I, I remember sort of watching this whole thing unfold um in a in a uh, IED um and yeah, just I, shook me, uh, and I struggle, I did struggle uh, and have struggled with it for a lot for a, a huge period of time, you know, and and uh, that sort of was was has been um, a demon on my back for a long period of time. Um, and um, yeah, I, I did really struggle with it, and i I, I felt guilt for struggling with it, particularly, you know, on my return from Afghanistan, I didn't really, I didn't understand why it was still bothering me so much. I didn't know either of the men particularly well. I, I had conversations with a pair of them, but, but I didn't know them. And yet, yeah, this had happened. And, um, yeah, you know, I, I say I didn't know them, but obviously I was a lot closer to, to the people, to the, to the, the last the regiment who I'd spent almost all my time with. And then this thing happened and, and, uh, yeah, I just, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't process it. I just couldn't, couldn't get past it. And it was only about a month ago when I was talking to uh, one of the other lads who was there, and I just thought, you know, I just asked him, said, you know, do you, do you still think about it? And he was like, yeah, like every day. And I just, it never really, um, you know, it, it, it really just sort of hit home. And I was like, I didn't know anyone else felt like this. And he was like, of course we do. All of us who were there feel that way, and I, I've never spoken to anyone else who was there about it. And he even said to me, "No, I, I do. I think about it every day. Yeah, I do. It's it, it bothers me. How like how could it not? And and you know we we'd seen a lot out there and stuff, and and um and, and done a lot, and 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 or you know the reality is it's not done much. You, you spend about ninety percent of your time on operations board, but um yeah, and then. And this thing happened and and, and and it just stood out just because they were two guys who I did know and it was it was four days before the end of our tour. So it was that kind of real tragedy at the end of the tour and doing the sort of the repatriation um, where the, the coffins are put on the back of the aircraft. Uh, it just it blew me away. Um, and and, and I struggled and, you know, you'd seen things out there and done things out there and I hadn't really... Phased me, um, but this thing absolutely, um, had, had really sort of blown me away. But you know, on the flip side to that, opening up these these checkpoints along uh, what's called Highway One, uh, as it goes into Goresh, um, sort of in, in Helmand, which is this is like the, the bloodline of, of the Helmand province, this this road that runs all the way through, and and uh, and and we'd sort of been involved with the. Establishment of the democratic process and the establishment of these checkpoints and and the training of the A and A um, and actually sort of to end the tour we, we got them to a, a live firing with with D thirty to old sort of old huge uh, um, artillery pieces got them to a live firing exercise with that you know getting them to do the planning the operation the you know the process of it and so they'd never. Sort of done that, and uh, it, you know it was absolutely incredible, and um, yeah, and and so that was at this moment of we've done a good thing here, you know we we we've, we've made a point, we've done what we what we came to do, but at the same time, you know that sort of very as we enter the tour, um, very bitter with 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 those deaths and and uh, yeah, yeah, yes to both both of those options really. Yeah, I felt like it made a difference, but there was also a moment now where I thought,
0: you know, awful. But yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, mate. But it's, no. it's it's crazy because exactly what you said is what, you know, my profession, police, medics, I'm sure, you know, ER personnel too. And then, you know, all the other people's dispatchers and corrections. And when you look around, well, everyone else is fine. So I must be the one being a pussy. So I just need to bury this down because even in the movies, they're, no, they're never phased by this in the movies, so therefore that must be real, and I, you know, I just need to suck it up. And then when you look behind the curtain and you ask these people, how are you actually feeling? Every single one of them is like, well, how the fuck am I supposed to forget that? I, you know, I mean, I can see all the the worst, you know, the worst things that I've seen. Now they're not front of my mind; I don't get triggered by them. But the little kid that was a shaken baby victim that lived another three or four years and died literally in my arms. You know what I mean? The drunk driver that killed all her friends and she survived. You know what I mean? All these people, just just these scenes, when I think about it, of course they're laid out in my mind. And you know, if someone asks me about them they'll pop they'll pop up immediately, but because that's what being a human being is. Unless you're a complete sociopath with no emotion whatsoever, when when someone dies, especially someone you're close to passes away, that is going to be with you for the rest of your life. It's just the the response in your body it causes can definitely be down-regulated through therapy and some of the other things. But you're never going to forget it.
1: No, and do you know what? I think that was um, that's been has been a really hard thing for uh, when you go through through is It's the understanding that you won't. It's not a case of getting over or forgetting or uh, trauma. It's a case of just learning to manage it better and how you deal with it personally better. And I think. I think that's kind of because you go there and you think, right, cure me. I think it's not really a case of that. I'm afraid you can't really just be cured. It's you're just going. We're going to teach you how to manage yourself better. And you think, oh, I was kind of hoping you would just make it all go away. Really, <laughs> it doesn't really work like that. I'm afraid there is no magic pill. There is no cure. There is no quick conversation we can have, and then that's you good to go.
0: Yeah. No. Exactly. But I think it's the same. Um as uh you know an injury so i hurt my back i've talked about this a few times about six years ago now five years ago um and didn't have surgery didn't take any meds or anything i ended up finding um a movement practice called foundation training which helped immensely and in chiropractic and some physical therapy and it came back stronger than ever now if i don't do those practices the pain returns. Like the the injury is still there, you know, but you've just created that strength around it. And I think that's the same with this: is once you're able to process it, it's still going to be there. But actually, you're more resilient now because you've you've been through that journey. You come out the other end, and just like yeah, we're talking yeah. about with your childhood, your childhood in in elements made you, you know, resilient and and a good soldier. But that's still there, and you're not going to look back and go, "Actually, that was a fun time." No, it's you know, it was fucking awful. You know what I mean? So I think that's the, the misunderstanding, is it's not going to go away but you can actually become more resilient if you do go down that path of dealing with that trauma.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, then you can uh, better identify the signs and symptoms within yourself and you learn to manage it better and you have a better appreciation of yourself And as well. And I think it's key that everybody sort of has is whether they have trauma or not and it's self-awareness. Like you become far more aware of yourself and in your emotions and why you feel in certain ways and actually that's that's really important because the sort of the doors once you do become more self-aware, the doors that then become open to you are incredible because you better get you get to better understand um, yourself, what it is you want, who it is you are, what it is you want in your life, what relationships you want, what people you want, what things you want to own, um, that the happiness that you seek because you're self-aware because you understand yourself better, and I think it you know that that's a that's something that I've learned through you know, the really unfortunate process of of trauma and sort of trauma recovery. But the reality is, is that it would be amazing if we could have everybody become more self aware because therefore everyone would then be able to find a much greater sense of happiness within their own lives and and within themselves.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, going back to your early time in the, in the army, I know I've had a few friends of mine that are in the British military on already. um, And it seems like they're doing, they're doing great things now. They've got some great things in place, but when you first entered back in two thousand six, what were the what were they what were the tools they were giving you guys to deal with this mental trauma that you were going to see, especially in wartime? You know, in that period of uh, well, history.
1: Well, yeah, well, it was a very very different different army, but just because everything was Herrick, so Herrick was the uh, o- 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 Herrick Operation Herrick was uh, was sort of the code name given to uh, Afghanistan. So. So everything became operate ob- focused, and 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 that provided so much um, because it, it provided a sense of purpose, and um, that sense of purpose was you are going there to do the business. Therefore, your training is going to be intense. Now, with intense training, then becomes intense relationships with people, like really positive relationships about trust. So therefore, that social support is in place. You are you 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 feel a great sense of reward and a, and a great positive effect when you achieve things because you were. You know, you know, you were really fighting for something. You were really training for something. So you had this incredible positive effect, this feeling of reward, and you had this incredible social support of the people around you and friendships made through adversity, which is true of all, all uniform services, is that friendship made for adversity is friendship for life, and and um, and so as far as sort of giving us um, sort of the, the, the skills required to sort of manage trauma, actually a lot of them were either subconsciously or inadvertently, or all very deliberately. Uh, given to us with this incredible sense of purpose that then provided all these other things with it. But the, the sense of formalized training that we have now, you know that there wasn't formalized training. We, we, we had a thing called trim, which was sort of post event, which is just which is trauma risk management, which is sort of where you have a unit representative and, and he sort of checks on you after sort of traumatic events, but there was nothing pre, but, um, I mean, it's obviously, you know, looking back, it's obviously something that we, we, we desperately needed. Um, for, for the amount of lads that will come back with such serious, serious trauma, but but um, you know at the time that everyone was just so focused on this this huge sense of purpose, but and all the things it provided with it gave us such psychological resilience because when you've got great people around you and you do feel like you're achieving things and you are smashing through your goals and you are you know striving towards this 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 excellence that you that you've never had in your life before, all of a sudden you know you are an extremely robust individual. Um, but there was no formalized training, though. No. Right.
0: So then, let walk us through the to the branch that you're in now and how that was formed.
1: Well, okay. Well, so um, so yeah, 2011 I returned from Afghanistan and, and a return to contingency airborne warfare for the brigade, and, and one of those things was um, an increase of um, of 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 parachuting increase because obviously the role of any sort of um, contingency operations airborne forces is loads of blokes jumping out, loads of C-130s and and seizing and, and and ground. And um, effectively, the um, the Royal Air Force sort of turned around to 16 aerosol brigade and said, like, sorry, but we don't really have enough people to man the amount of parachuting that you now require, you know, you're, you're back to sort of brigade Battle group level jumps. Um, we're not going to be able to support that. We we simply don't have the manpower to train you. to sixty hours stop game right? went. Well, okay, what if we are? Uh, what if we pick eight lads and they go down and they take over the role of parachute instructor and and they run with it? And the RAF went all right. And um, I sort of had a had a had a bit of a hard time with it um, with with my with my mental health. With things that have gone on in my personal life, you know, upon my return from my understanding. I found a great sense of purpose in in, in strength, condition coaching at Colchester Rugby Club, the local rugby club. And I sort of really got into this this coaching that I could do with the lads and how much help I could give lads and, and advice and guidance, you know, within their personal lives. So um, I sort of said, you know what? If there's a, an opportunity for this, I'd like to throw my hat into that ring, as did so many people. Like an opportunity to go to RF Bars Norton and become the British Army's first army parachute jumping instructors platoon obviously appealed to the entire brigade uh, like everybody wanted a slice of that um so those people threw the hat in the ring and and sort of unit then whittled it down and then it went to the brigade brigade hq and went and sat in there and had chats with people and then then we had to go to rf Boris Norton, and they whittled it down to eight and i was really lucky really really lucky that i was one of those those eight i, I think it was based purely upon the fact that I said I played rugby because uh, they've got um, some outstanding rugby players in, in O5 Norton, which is essentially the other side of the country, to Colchester, to Essex. So, yeah, I went down there and, 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 and got on this PGI thing, and it was amazing. It was probably the best, this was 2016, it was probably the best two years of my army career as far as sort of that, that, that army phrase of living the dream. It was, you know, parachuting in the day. And, and 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 partying at night, you know, and it was it, we're not partying, but but you know having a laugh at night and and playing loads of rugby and 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 hang out with like you know the lads and having fun, and then oh we parachute tomorrow oh no it's too windy okay cool have a day off you know oh, brilliant you know and then we all you know bump into town and go have a coffee and go to the gym and then you know go bowling or muck about and you know have a laugh and and that, that was brilliant and, you know that was an amazing two years to sort of to spend to spend there, but being very aware of my own sort of mental health journey that I'd gone through before, I, I kind of decided that I wanted to do more to get involved. So I did sort of charity work and got involved. And then I sort of found myself on um, courses that were actually being run by the Samaritans. On, um, I did courses on uh, suicide prevention, suicide um, awareness, conversations with vulnerable people and, and grief counselling. And through did all these courses, became more and more involved. And then fairly uncharacteristically to me one day, I was actually reading my emails and um and they sort of had this like defense update email about how the army was looking at sort of introducing a you know a, a new sort of drive on um mental health and mental well-being called Opsmart and and uh and, and and this that and the other and sort of at the bottom it had a name and an email address so i pinged this email address to this to this lady and i said so2 of mental health and said look i think we should be doing more peer-to-peer support i think this should be being taught by lads, you know, to lads and it should be soldiers looking after soldiers, you know, teaching about preventative measures and, and, um, and and we should be getting, you know, more, blokes should be getting more involved and, um, she went, yeah, you've got a point, come on then. So I was brought on and I was introduced to this guy who was sort of the originator of mental resilience training and, and went to a few of his talks and had a few chats afterwards and he went, yeah, this is the guy that I want and, uh, and they went, right, Jim, you're now doing this. And I was plucked out of the parachute training school and I was sent to the Army HQ where I worked with this I just, a guy called Reggie Lindsay, just an absolute outstanding guy who just, like, he's fantastic. And he, uh, and he sort of took me on and, and sort of showed me all this mental resilience stuff that he'd been coaching down at um, the infantry training centre in Catterick. And we sat there and we chatted and we chatted and and, and he sort of helped me and we exchanged we exchanged a huge amount of ideas, spent a lot of time talking about it, a lot of time sat around discussing things and thinking about things and sort of having a laugh and and, and he you know just it's like one of those moments where you get introduced to somebody and he's a lot senior to me now, you know. He's a he's a he's a warrant officer and, and you think, wow, what a senior guy, you know. And and but instantly sort of really made sure it was very professional but very relaxed. And um, sort of really sits and listens, and we exchange ideas and we talk. And it just you couldn't you couldn't ask for a better situation, you know. when somebody is that senior, but they're also very aware that we're both human beings, we've both got our own experiences, and, um, and particularly him's got some incredible experiences. And um and yeah, we sat and 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 then he brought me on, and, and 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 here I am now. You know, I've there's, there's, I've got a couple of people who. Who I work with who I'm helping bring them on as mental resilience um, instructors. And, and we go around them and, and we sort of we go to all these camps uh, every day and do like essentially a TED talk. You know, we get up we, we, we sort of coach these points about mental resilience and psychological skills. And we go camp to camp to camp, you know, every day teaching about mental resilience training and, and, and mental well being and, and how, how it all ties together into the big picture. And, and I had nothing but really great feedback, really great feedback. And it's such a rewarding job. Uh, so,
0: how I find myself where I am now that 's amazing it 's a hell of a journey
1: yeah
0: now it has we'll, been. so so contra- uh, contrasting then I know over here you know we talk about losing twenty two veterans to suicide every day. we lose more first responders to suicide than we do line of duty deaths. Um, what are some of the statistics? I know suicide is literally the tip of the iceberg. We've got addiction and all the other things that are really, you know, the next layer below, which is a lot, a lot broader. But what are you seeing in the British armed services?
1: Um, so in the British armed services what we tend to find is that the uh, the suicide figures are actually better um, than than those figures within uh, society. So what we tend to find is that the, um, uh, the the suicide figures actually tend to be a lot lower um, within the the British Army and and. Uh, I could be for a whole a whole multitude of reasons. But um what something that we that we are finding as well is that people are so much more aware of it and people are so much more aware of mental health and people are so much more sympathetic, like that stigma is definitely changing. And that's a very difficult thing to measure. And it's almost anecdotal evidence, is the only evidence that I could supply. But from personal experience, my own personal anecdotal experience, I can say that things are definitely getting better within. The context of stigma, communication and the process of which people can talk about it and people can get help is definitely massively improved, particularly since when I joined in 2006, I wasn't even aware of the process. But I'm obviously extremely aware of it now as are most of the lads And it's becoming a, 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 a far more talked about, discussed and managed issue than it, than it has been.
0: Yeah. I think one, one area that I didn't even think of till I interviewed, I forget who it was now. I'm drawing a blank. Um, but it was, uh, I think it might be, um, Dr. Javid, but it was one of the, the, the either service members or medical personnel in the UK. And one of the huge barriers to, to finding help here is, is the way we do our, our medical system, our, our healthcare, you know, with the insurance. Where you might find someone, oh, that'd be a good person. Oh, yeah, sorry, they're not on your network, so you can't afford them. You know what I mean? Whereas with the NHS, all that red tape and those barriers to entry are removed because you just find someone. You know, and I think that's that's definitely a, a glaring contrast between the two systems. Is you don't have to worry about how you're going to pay for it in the UK versus here that literally can stop you from seeing the actual counselor that you probably need to see.
1: Yeah, and this isn't so much uh, a, a massive issue within the militaries when it is on, 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 on Simi Street, but the, but the sort of double edged sword to that is the fact that, oh, that is such an awful military cliche to use. But the double edged sword to that is the fact of, of, then, of then waiting times, because it's available to everybody. And so if you need it, please, absolutely. But then there's so many people who need it, um, and it is available to them, but it's available after a wait you
0: know yeah yeah which is not uh, what you want with mental health this is not what you want with mental health right so in in these ted talk style presentations that you're doing what yeah. are some of the things that you're presenting that you're finding so much success with
1: uh i tend to find that, that that goal setting is 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 a really really popular subject when i get onto that to to the goal setting the purpose of of, of setting goals is is it's not because because we all need goals right when we talked about A sense of purpose, loads. We need, as human beings, we need a sense of purpose and we need to know that we've got a direction and we need to know that we are not just sitting still. Like the sort of bigger pitch to that is, as human beings, we are designed to struggle. Like contentment is not, we are not designed to be content. We are designed to constantly fight for the next thing and push forward for the next thing. And yet we don't because it's so much easier as human beings to take that safe option, take that comfortable option of just sitting there and not achieving everything that you could achieve which is a tragedy Um, and so people are sitting there becoming more and more frustrated with their lives but not really understanding why but if you introduce them to how to set goals and setting goals properly and why you need to set goals all of a sudden they're now taking ownership of their own lives and taking ownership of their own direction and that means then that they are taking ownership of their own mental well-being because we need to be pushing in direction if you can understand the process of how to get that direction, how to get that sense of purpose, and how to get what you want, then there's really nothing stopping you. I was explaining about some of the greatest human beings on the planet, and I like to use a guy called Sir Tim Peake, who was a British astronaut. Sir Tim Peake didn't just wake up and the next day become an astronaut. Like it took years and years and years of goal setting and training and developing, understanding what he is good at, understanding what he is bad at, and how he, how he can manipulate both of those things to get to his ultimate outcome. And he has been doing that like so successfully but he's just one example of literally thousands that you could pick from in in, in the world of of people who are just extremely good at goal setting and who are self-aware enough to acknowledge that they are bad at certain things and better at other things and then manipulate both of them to get to where they want to go And, and and when I sit and I talk to these lads about goal setting you know and I say I want to know about your goals but I don't want all of them to be military so I want everyone to set an outcome goal but I don't want everyone in here to have a military goal. I want people who, who want goals outside of the military because that's important that they understand that as well. You know, they got that. Yes, absolutely pursue that next rank. Do it. The, the military is a pyramid. It's a hierarchy. It's essential that people push forward. We can't, can't be overly heavy at the bottom. We need people at the top. Absolutely. But you also need to expand your lives and expand you as a person and as a character outside of the military. So yes, have a military goal, but actually, it's also good to have a civilian goal. Why are you not studying for a degree? The army will pay for your education. Like there's very few civil companies that offer that sort of freedom of choice that the army does. What do you want to do? Well, you've got learning credits. You've got enhanced learning credits, standard learning credits. You have an edu- On most camps now, there's an education centre with an assigned, essentially a teacher who's going to help you. Now, <laughs> you can turn up there and you can say, right, well, I want to do a degree in coaching and mentoring or I want to do a degree in leadership. They go, brilliant. They'll help you. And they'll pay for it. And people don't take it and they sit there in their rooms or they sit there and they go, I'm so frustrated with my life. You know, I need to achieve something. I need to do something. Well, what do you want to do? Well, I don't know. Well, no, 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 no. That but there's no passips, mate. You need to decide what you want to do. Like decide who you are, decide where you want to go, what you want to do and just do it okay yeah they start thinking about it and then they do start making progress and they do start making steps in the right direction and then you see these guys you know six months later you know how are you getting on yeah i'm doing this i'm doing that i've got my level three diploma in this i've got my level three diploma in that and i have pushed there or i've bought that house or i've bought that car or i've achieved this and i've achieved that and you think it's just because you understand the process and actually we do the process of goal setting all the time and i use this as an example i say right no, aside from the goal setting exercise that I've just done here. Who here has set goals in the last 24 hours? Well, no, we haven't. Well, you have, haven't you? Because when did you find out you needed to be on this talk? Well, last night. Okay, so then what did you do? I well, set an alarm. Well, why did you set an alarm? Because I know I needed to wake up on time. Right, so then, we go. Sleep is an issue. Sleep's a problem. Sleep sleep is something that you're very good at, but actually achieving your goal, you're not so great at it because you can't just wake up when you want. So therefore, you've identified something that is an issue, that is a problem that's going to stop you getting to your outcome goal, which is your sleep and sleeping in. Therefore, you set an alarm. Now, what time do you set your alarm? Oh, what, seven o'clock? Well, why did you set it an hour and a half earlier than where you needed to be? Or oh, because I need to get up and wash and eat and shower. There we go. So you've identified the fact that actually for you to reach your outcome goal and be in a good start state for your, for your outcome goal, is actually you need to be washed, you need to be clean, you need to be shaved, you need to be dressed, you need all of these things. So actually... What you're doing all the time is your goal setting, right? Okay, so I need to sleep, but I need to make sure I have enough sleep but not too much sleep, so I'm gonna set an alarm because I need to make sure that I've done this and this and this. So I've achieved all these tiny little goals to achieve my outcome goal. Now we do it all the time and we do it as an automatic process. Take that automatic process, put it into your conscious mind and go, right, I want I want a degree. Okay, right. Well, to get that degree, I need to make sure that I'm putting in X amount of hours studying. I need to make sure that I'm doing this, that I'm doing that, that I'm achieving this and achieving that in the same way you would make sure you get to a parade on the correct time the next day. You would identify all the things that are going to stop you from getting on that parade and being in a good state and and, and negate against them. Well, then you need to then take that process and apply it to your conscious mind. And people are like, I never thought about it like that. No, because you've not been shown, but now you've been shown, like the world is your oyster. You could be the next certain peak. There's literally nothing stopping you but you. I think there's a famous Les Brown quote. This is an American author. And, and he says that man has no limits over the those he sets himself. And himself, I always say, is the key word there because it's the limit. We always put glass ceilings over our own heads, okay, whether or not we're socially conditioned to say, to say this or conditioned from childhood or <coughs> parenting. Excuse me. <coughs> or Parenting. We are convinced that we are terrible at certain things when we're not. <coughs> we are convinced of our own limitations that we don't really have. It's easier to be safe. But then, you're not, but then you become content. If you become content, you become miserable because you're not achieving anything because you don't have that sense of purpose. You don't have that momentum that driving your life anymore. So we become socially conditioned to restrict ourselves, to limit ourselves, to put a glass ceiling over our own head. But actually, if you can get the process of goal setting to make challenging, but achievable, challenging, but achievable small steps to get to where you need to go, actually, there is nothing stopping you from that place being where you want to go. Being in space that place being CEO of a massive company because all these people you read their autobiographies, or you read their biographies they are just really good at setting goals and get into those goals so goal setting for me is, is the one that, that, that I think really strikes home
0: yeah that, that's uh such a great way of thinking as well because I think we are so whatever well, they say we forget we I can absolutely hear the self-talk and the self-doubt and and when I read The definition of imposter syndrome, I was like, oh, shit, that's me. Like, I'm being a fireman and I'm running around, you know, knocking in doors and, and, you know, putting out fires. And I'm like, no one knows that I'm actually not very good at this. You know what I mean? And then you start talking to each other. You're like, wait a second. We all think the same thing. So you can look at the Instagram highlight reel and be like, wow, these people, you know, they just rolled out of bed and became the NBA NBA, basketball star but then you look behind the curtain again and well, they had a shitty childhood and this is why they trained all the time because they didn't want to go home and you know there's like you said there's this there's this desire but there was that burning burning desire at the end of the road the the, the ultimate goal and they basically reverse engineer back to today and that's the thing if you're 50 pounds overweight or you know your your blood sugar's got out of control or your flexibility is horrendous you know whatever it is it's not going to be resolved tomorrow, but you can take that first step. And just like you said, creating that daily routine. I mean, I'm by no means perfect whatsoever, but the things that I do every day are only there because one day I decided to do it the day one. And then the next day I did it until, you know, what they say, 30 days, whatever it becomes a habit. And uh, so powerful because that's that's the thing. It's the cumulative effect of those tiny decisions that ultimately lead to the big ones.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, yeah, and it is—it is just that—that that small step. Nobody starts as as the expert. I'm, there's a a clip, just there, I think it's like five seconds long, and it's Tiger Woods hitting a, a putt. I'm not a golfer, so if I use the wrong terminology, whoever whoever is a golfer will just have to forgive me. But hits <laughs> a putt, right? And he hits the ball, and it goes towards the hole. And before it's even got in the hole, he's turned around and he's he's shaking and and celebrating with his his caddy, the guy who carries his his golf sticks. And he celebrate with him, and the ball goes in, and, and it's in there. The, the power of confidence, but I think people miss the point because absolutely he's confident. But why is he confident? Well, that's ten thousand hours of practice that he's put in. He has put a ball on every imaginable position on on these greens, and it, and has hit 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 it, and has hit, it hit it. So it goes in to the point where when he hits it, he already knows that ball's going in or not. And that's the same. Johnny Wilkinson, his autobiography is fascinating. The thing he said. In the two months running up to the uh, World Cup in 2003, I think he said he kicked 3,000 balls. And he used to picture his, I think it was his aunt or his nan, I think it was his grand actually, who um, used to sit in the crowd and she always used to wear purple. She'd wear a big, big, daft purple hat all the time. And he used to always picture her. So he's visualizing his nan and how the ball's going to go over. He said that the, the exact moment he hit that ball with his foot, he would know whether or not that was going in or not. But that isn't from confidence. That's from training and training and training and training. He, to, it is absolutely embedded in his brain exactly where where he needs to hit it, how hard he needs to hit it, you know. And as soon as he has struck it, he knows he before that ball has even left the tee. This that, that's the millisecond we're talking about. He knows whether or not that's going through that post. So so yes, that that is it is about. It is about confidence, but actually, you have you get that confidence from hours and hours and hours of dedicated practice and dedicated training and training and training and training and training. And training. So you know exactly how what you're going to do and, and how exactly it's going to play out. And and people want it instantly. People want this instant fix in their life, but you're never going to get an instant fix. It's not how it works. And if you do manage to find an instant fix or a, or a shortcut, then it's not going to be a worthy victory it's not going to be enjoyable. I've played rugby games and I've had a game where we've won by like 70, 80 odd points and, and i found myself more bored, more cold, more frustrated, more annoyed in that game than I have in any other game because it's just a pointless victory. What are we doing here? And so, if your goals are easy, you're not going to be motivated. You're not going to be excited by it. You're not going to be driven. You want that intrinsic motivation to achieve things and to have that, you need to be challenged by it. So, if you do have a quick and easy fix for a problem, then it's the the chances are the problem isn't really worth solving anyway it's not it's not it's not a a goal it's not an outcome goal worth worth having because you need to be challenged we need to find something that's challenging and exciting because that becomes motivated and then we become passionate and driven and intense about achieving what we want to achieve
0: yeah that aligns so well with something a guy i'm actually interviewing this afternoon after we're done with this um and uh, he was talking about flow state in another interview. And it was interesting because he said exactly the same analogy as you. So you got the one side, which is the training and the skill. But then if there isn't the challenge and competition on the other side, exactly like you said, his example was, you know, an eight-year-old plays basketball with Michael Jordan. Well, is Michael Jordan going to have any fun with that? No. If he, if he plays, you know, competitively, it's just going to be completely boring for him. So you've got to have that competitive state. And then those two come together and you've, you know, re- you may find that flow state, which is like you said, when you just kick the ball, I had one moment. I remember when I did Taekwondo, I used to fight years ago. Um, and I just knew what this guy was going to do before he even did it. And, you know, I did the counter and, and that was it destroyed his confidence. And ended up, I was losing the fight, ended up winning the fight, but it's again, it's all those things together. If I'd been whitewashing him, I wouldn't have had a, you know, a, a flow state moment, but it was such a close thing where I was about to lose and those two came together. So, yeah, um, you know, it's, it's an amazing moment. But without that challenge, like you said, you're never going to get that heightened uh, of feeling of of being in that flow.
1: Yeah, I, I remember in our, um, I think it was the sevens on the rugby sevens uh, world record that we did. And uh, I said, what's the score? And we're about 20 hours into the game at this point. What is the score? And they they sort of the whole thing was obviously what's adjudicated nature, you know, it's all all fair. And uh, the score person shouted, All oh, right it's. You're winning, it's 3,200 to 2,400. <laughs> and it just, it, like, it was just the most demotivational thing I've ever heard. Because you're winning by nearly 1,000 points, right? They've got four hours left. They're not going to get 1,000 points in, in that four hours. And yet, because we'd won, the challenge had sort of gone. And I'm like, oh no, shit, where's the excitement? Like, where is the excitement now? Like, what's, what's the point? You know, and it was, I had to then dig quite deep to then think, it's not about the winning, you know, it's about now getting to the end and then winning the, the, the world record. But then, because I knew we were going to win the game, I was like, well, can I take my foot off the gas? Because I've lost all my toenails and I, I've lost most of the skin off the bottom of my feet and I'm fairly sure I've, I've broken both of my legs. You know, I'm fairly sure that I'm just a zombie at this moment. But but actually, no, like, you know, keep competing, keep fighting, keep putting the sprints in, keep putting the hard tackles in, like just get there. Because you don't want to cheat yourself. And like know that at the end of the day when you go, when you eventually get into bed that you could have worked harder. You don't want that feeling. So that's kind of what motivated me. But but yeah, absolutely. Like to for, for something for it to suddenly realize that it was it now effectively got to that point of Michael Jordan playing an eight year old. That actually I was like, oh God, like I I'm not really asked. <laughs> I wish I had an ass now. I wish, because in my head it was still really close and I needed to keep fighting and keep fighting and keep fighting. When I found out, I actually know you've, you've tanked it. I thought, well, oh no, how how demotivating is that?
0: <laughs> well, let's stay on that topic for a second then. So you did um, 24 and a half hours rugby game, is that right? Non-stop. Yeah, so, I did
1: so we did it twice. So I'm, I'm part of a rugby team called the Horace Sevens, um, named after the Egyptian God of the Sky. Um, and um, a lot of them are RAF parachute instructors, and um, from the camp of RAF Boys Norton, which is sort of like a little hive of, of very talented rugby players. And uh, so yeah, we did we did twenty four and a half hours of rugby sevens. That was in two thousand <coughs> and seventeen, uh, and yeah, and then two. It was this year, or, or actually, you won't be bringing it out till it's technically last year. But yeah, so the the, the summer of two thousand and nineteen, we did twenty four and a half hours of Rugby tens, um, yeah, for the Guinness World Record, and it uh, was emotional to say, to say the least. But I found the sevens a lot worse. Um, I, I simply, I suggest it's probably because it's just a lot more sprinting involved in sevens than it is in tens. But yeah, so we did, we did both of them, we raised money for the uh, Benevolent Fund, and um, yeah, it was great, it was, it was brilliant, it was um, tough. But um, but actually quite manageable. But I, again, you know, like I talk about goal setting, breaking that twenty four hours down into little chunks, little steps, it became very achievable. But I'm like, okay, and it sounds mad to say out loud, but okay, right, I'm going to play eight hours of rugby. I'm going to get through the first eight hours. Once I've done eight hours, you know, and then and then I'm going to break it down into 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 two four hours, and then I'm going to break it down into 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 into, into what am I, like, four two hours. So yeah, it was. Um, by breaking it down, breaking that huge, that massive outcome goal of getting to the end, actually managed to, to make it much more achievable.
0: Brilliant! Now you did that also fundraiser for for one of your, your brothers. So tell me the story behind that.
1: Okay, so yeah, this is just an incredible guy Rob Upton, um, who um, I highly recommend that, um, and I'll speak to him as well that you get him on here. But he, what a guy, um, an incredible athlete. who then had, and I don't want to, in case you do our more I do want to take his, his light in, had a terrible accident and um, and uh, became paralyzed from the chest down and um, was a keen rugby player and and so sort of this this whole, whole of sevens team was set up, you know, in, in um, sort of with Rob in mind and because uh, uh, he was so keen into it and just a great way to unite people around him, you know, for him to still have that social support. And it just kind of went from strength to strength to strength, like right? great rugby players, great guys who knew Rob from before, who, who, who know that, who are, you know, uh, in some way involved, the guy who organises all of this mainly is a guy called Taff. Um, and Taff sort of um, just very lovable. And, and therefore, so has played a very high level of rugby. So a lot of people sort of know this, know this guy Taff want to get involved and, it, we, you know, we we started off, you know, doing small local tournaments, and then wound well, up, you know, the heart of Wales rugby tournament. We played against like Italy, we played against Switzerland, we even played against Afghanistan. You know, played against the British Army in rugby sevens, which didn't go down great. But we, <laughs> lads. Oi, lads, what are you doing? Oh, Wanker. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all of that. Are you a traitor. You <laughs> absolutely, But whatever. And then, uh, yeah, and then, and then we said, look, you know, Tash said. I remember Tash saying to me, goes. I had this idea. He's, he's Welsh, by the way. That was my personation of a Welsh accent. Uh, and, um, and and uh, yeah, he said, I had this idea, and and let's do a um, let's do a, a world record in, in this. And I said, yeah, I'll do it, hundred percent. And some people took it a little bit more convincing than others. Um, and and yeah, we uh, we went and 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 organised the scene and then we we went and we did it, and it was brilliant. And then I, <clears throat> I remember sort of seeing Taft the next week. So that literally, I finished that on, so that was from Saturday afternoon until sort of Sunday evening, and then on the Monday morning, I was teaching parachute landings, and I had no toenails. I had no, like, my whole bottom of my feet at this point was just absolute blisters. And I'm obviously, I'm very much used to spending a lot of time on my feet, but, you know, I'm not, it's not like I'm sprinting in studded boots on hard ground, you know, when I'm deployed. So almost, like, I've absolutely mummified my feet in tape. And then I remember jumping off a high ramp and like landing and just this shot going through my body. And like, my body was going, what are you doing? And sort of crumbling on, <laughs> excuse me, and um, crumbling on the mats in front of these young students and just be like, ah, and uh stumbling into taft's office and he's sort of oh, all right bud uh, yeah how are you he's I'm in a bad way Yeah, yeah me too and people were all laughing at me doing these trying to teach these landings and i said, you know oh we should do it again for tens i sort of laughed and i said oh but you know you know we can do that next year if you like and he was like yeah all right and then we did you know we did we did we did do it for tens you know and it's sort of the same story Really, he, he sort of approached me and said would you be interested and i said yeah, definitely, hundred percent. And and so we went and did it. And interestingly enough, the pe- some some people who did the sevens were like, "Yes, I'd love to," and some people who, who did the sevens were like, do "You know what? <laughs> no, you're right. Thanks. You'll have to uh, you have to find someone else." But yeah, <laughs> was was that uh, was was brilliant. Was fun. I I definitely uh, definitely do 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 something similar again.
0: Brilliant. So I, wanted, I want to talk about one other thing before we go to some wrap up questions. Um, you got to sit down with a World War Two veteran Bill Fitzgerald and I know the British Army filmed it so tell me about that interaction
1: well essentially my 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 boss's boss um, he is uh, oh, I can't remember the name of it. but he's, he's he's a patron uh, at, at the Chelsea at the Royal Hospital Chelsea so he's very much involved there And he said to them that you know I one of my departments does his mental resilience training you know um would you be interested in having them in so they can talk to, uh, you know, uh, a World War Two vet about um, mental resilience? So they said, "Yeah, yeah, yes, we'd love that." Yes, please bring them on. So I went with, with this guy, uh, Reggie Lindsay. We went in and we uh, we sat down and um, and yeah, I got to I got to speak to Bill Fitzgerald. And I, sort of the idea was it was that I, I sort of interview him and, and speak to him about it. But I mean. I just sat opposite him and I just like, I must have been like the worst interviewer ever because I sat there in total awe of this man. Like, would well, he talking about, um, you know, he, he, was, he was 16 years old and his, his house got bombed for the third time by the Germans and he was like, right, I've had enough. I'm joining up and joined up and then talked about storming the beaches in Normandy with his, with his mates and the amazing thing about him, sorry, the amazing thing about what he was saying was that everything was we. It was never I, it was always we or us or our. It was never about him as an individual. It's about them as a unit. So he said, Oh, then we went down to here and then we did this and then we got on a boat and then, uh, and then the boat got hit by a mine. So, like, the oh, you know, again, someone who's listened to this who might be Navy will have to forgive me for my ignorance. But the guy from the Navy sort of jumped down with this huge rope and said, Right, follow me because if I don't get hit by a mine, then you shouldn't. So just follow the rope. So Bill followed this rope and was nearly drowned by the weight of his machine gun. And he got on the beach and then stormed the beach and stormed through with all his mates. And he said, we stormed the beach, we stormed here. And then it was D-Day. I think it was D-Day plus four to four days into D-Day. And and they were pushing through a wood line. Again, in a fight with the Germans, and a piece of shrapnel took a massive whacking great chunk out of his leg. And uh, yeah, one of the guys covered his face and said, "Uh, don't look, Bill. And sort of covered his face with his helmet and Bill thought I'm just going to die and sort of came to and then obviously had not and was shipped back to a hospital and a surgeon looked at his leg and said I'm going to put you in a cast that you're going to have to stay in for a year um, if this doesn't work you're going to lose your leg don't move your leg for a year and put him in a cast put him in a, in a hospital bed and he stayed in that hospital bed in that me- metal cast for a year yeah and uh, his, his girlfriend at the time who was also enlisted in the nursing corps she sort of um, came back and and um, hadn't yet been discharged. And then the the uh, surgeon came back, took the metal cast off, had a look at his leg, and went, "Yeah, you're going to be fine. You can now start to learn to walk on it." And Bill insists that he's uh, his right leg is a few inches shorter than his left because of it. And he went and, and went back to go live with his wife. But like the story doesn't really end there because his wife actually um, helped him with his with his trauma and. Uh, she would set goals like okay you get to the end of the week or um, we're going to go we're going to get on the train we're going to hop down to Brighton and we're going to sit on the seaside in Brighton for the weekend and and he would you know, yeah and that she setting goals and all of his friends and family all rallied around each other which is obviously something that we don't have you know you only have to listen to sort of 10 minutes of our open conversation to realize that you know we definitely don't have the same family and Friendship, union, sense of community that they had back then, and he was—they all looked after each other. They were all around him, and his friends used to say, "Oh, you're—you're you're basically married to a, um, uh, like a you're a counsellor. You're basically married to a carer, and she looked after him, and, and and she sort of helped rehabilitate him. And they, you know, they stayed together, and, and she, you know, she she not until fairly recently, you know, uh, passed away, and, and there's now 96-year-old Paul Fitzgerald living in Royal Hospital Chelsea, speaking to. Her. Yeah, I must look like a child to him, you know. About <laughs> his experiences in, and, and his life with mental resilience, and I think that it goes a long way to sort of show how much society has changed as far as the family unit goes. When we, you know, we don't we don't have it as uh, as good as they do. We're not as well supported, and actually, it shows you how important that that support network is. If you are struggling with your mental health, with your resilience, with your mindset, it is all about having that that support around you.
0: Yeah, and it was it was just interesting to hear a World War Two veteran candidly speak about that. Like when he first came back, he he said like I don't even know how I'm going to deal with it." And then, as you said, he, he mentioned his wife coming in, and, and that was his his savior. But I know, as a you know grandson of a World War Two vet who was actually on the Orkney Islands, so he wasn't overseas; he was protecting from the the uh, the air attacks. But my he never ever ever spoke about world war ii and you hear that so often like even though that generation was was welcome back and they were you know they were heroes to us or unlike some of the other conflicts where that wasn't the case um you know they 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 shoved it down deep inside and didn't address it so to have people like bill and then you know i I talk about this a lot the the men of uh, band of brothers the real men that are talking at the end in tears 50 60 70 years later you know is is so powerful but we need to see that because that smashes the facade we talked about earlier the hollywood bullshit of oh men don't cry fuck that this man cries he's one of the most heroic motherfuckers ever been on the planet so if he can cry i sure as shit i'm gonna cry
1: I mean like if you if you are a, 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 a uniformed protector is sort of that, that phrase that I'm now coining that you said, you know, that, that most people in uniform are protectors. That if you are a uniformed protector and you can sit through that last episode of Band of Brothers and not be absolutely punched in the feelings, then then you are a sociopath because when when Bill Garnier and when Captain Winters and it and it shows him as and obviously it then puts a name to him, doesn't it? So they sort of do the introduction but you're not really sure. Whom is who? And then a name appears next to it. You're like, oh, my God, that old man who's sort of, you know, saying, uh, you know, I, sometimes when it's really cold, my wife says, oh, it's really cold. And, you know, I turn to and say, oh, nothing will be as cold as that night in Bastogne. And you think, oh, this is, it's just some, you know, not some random, like, I'm belittling them, but just, a, you know, a bloke who was there, just a random guy who was there. It's not an actual character. And then you realise, yeah, no, oh, my God, that's, that's Bill Garnier or that's, that's Captain Winters or you know, that's butch or whatever. And then their name appears and, and then they start talking about, you know, how much they struggled and you're like, oh my you know, oh my God, like this is it's hard to watch. Unbelievable. You know, what a yeah, really hard hitting moment to sit about that. Um when start
0: talking. But I mean I really enjoyed your your interview too. I thought it was, you know I mean obviously it's it's different than Band of Brothers, but to have a member of that that conflict, um speak candidly, you know, who, when people pass him, would probably be like, oh, you know, annoying pensioner, <laughs> you know, and people forget that these, these men and women, though, some of them can be grumpy when they get older, they, some of them did the most incredible things that created the country that we now enjoy.
1: Yeah, we, we got invited to, um, to the lunch to the scoff house. And, and I'm really lucky that I'm actually going back there uh, in February them invited back, um so I'm so excited about. It. And you sit in the scoff you're having food with them and you start there having food and and then they you know and you say, Oh they said, oh, oh, you know, were you in Afghanistan? You say, Yeah I was he said, Oh yeah, I was in I think one guy who was sat with me, oh, I was in Korea, the guy across the table, oh, I was in Suez, and then another guy, oh yeah, I was um yeah, I I, I, I was at the end of my career when I went to, to the Falklands and you're like, Wow, you know what in you're right, you know, this that man would walk past me in the street and you know I Smile and say good morning, and, and and he'd smile and say good morning back. And I wouldn't think twice about it. But you know, they've all got these incredible stories, but they are just they, you know, they appear on the surface to be such normal men, such such humble normal men. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm, sti- I'm still I love rewatching that um, interview. And, and obviously, like all interviews, it's edited down. But I was with the guy for a couple of hours. You know, we sat there and we had we had a crew together. He told me to get the bruise on, you young yeah, lad. Go on. I'll have it <laughs> you know, like, well, you know, yeah, yeah, fair enough, mate, yeah. Real World War Two, mate, me you can ask me for whatever you want. You can have it. I'll and, you uh, a
0: martini if you need it.
1: <laughs> yeah, mate, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's here's, here's, here's my is my messages number, mate. Like you've earned it, like whatever. <laughs> whatever you want, man. And uh yeah, and, and, and you sit there and you think, Wow, you know, what a you know, what an amazing human being and and, and it was a real, real joy to um to, to to be in you know to be there and to do that and to speak to him and 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 he was he still had a great sense of humor and he was still very witty and he was sharp and you know he was everything you wanted him to be you know half deaf and a little bit grumpy you know everything you want you know i was like oh this, this guy is brilliant he is fantastic
0: brilliant all right well you just made me think of one more area i want to ask you because uh i know that you're a proud dad and, and with many of my guests, you know, your experience with fatherhood as a child may not have been as ideal as, as a child would hope. So what what was it like for you when you became a father?
1: Scary. Scar- I remember being scared. So I, I sort of aided the delivery of my daughter onto my poncho in my living room floor of my pad house. So that's like she had like the ultimate green beginning. Uh, poor thing. And um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I just remember thinking like, what am I going to do? Uh, how am I how am I going to manage being a soldier, being a father? How am I going to manage? You know, I don't know the first thing about. And, I, and and you know, but nobody does today. Nobody knows how they're going to do it. And I think the important thing for me was was that I consciously thought, you know, I, I don't ever want that cycle repeated. I don't want her to carry trauma from my childhood you know, because trauma that I've caused. And and I remember being so painfully aware for the first couple of years of my life that that I just I was I just didn't want to be like my father, you know. I, I mem- remember thinking that so much and, and and being a bit insecure at times, you know, about, you know, what like, what you know, what is this how it starts? Do I start thinking that I'm gonna become that way and then I start becoming that way? But but no and, and, and you just you settle into this like wonderful bond and this wonderful rhythm with her and um, um, it's been difficult at times, you know, um, not being able to see her um, and then sort of going through the court cases and the court battles to, to get there and, and, and got there and and now I see her loads and um, I have this like really intense not intense in a negative way but a really great relationship with her. And um, she's great. She is so fantastic and, and, and a lot of the time she's been a motivation for a lot of things, you know, like I think the easy decision would have been to stay at the parachute training school and just continue teaching parachuting and not taking on this mental resilience coaching posting. But I, I do remember thinking like what would make Georgina proud. Like I've got to set an example for her of how of what I think a, a modern man, modern masculinity should look like. And and that that to me is doing the right thing and, and protecting and helping people when you can. And if you have the ability to help people, you have the responsibility to help people, and that's the example that I wanted to set for her. So that first one, what it did, and 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 it is difficult, but I do I do absolutely love it. And and like all credit to Georgina, she is just a lovely little girl, and is just so easy to look after because all she wants to do is is play and, and have fun and learn, and she's great.
0: Brilliant, and it's so so great to hear. Yeah, you know, that that owning that cycle and be like nah that's not going to repeat itself we're going to do the polar opposite and make sure because I mean you can't protect everything my little boy I'm, I'm divorced so he goes from house to house and that is you know it's heartbreaking that element but you cannot control that you can't control that the person that you had a child with now just you know is isn't the right fit for whatever reason and but everything else you can when they're with me I'm going to make sure that I do as many things right as I can I'm going to make mistakes of course we all do but I'm deliberately gonna try and be the best parent I can be.
1: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely agree. And 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 really that's all that can ever be asked. You like you can't no no such thing as a perfect parent, apart from the parent who tries to do their best all the time. Like hundred percent of the time, you are trying to do the right thing. And that that that's the perfect parent because you're still gonna make mistakes, but as long as you're trying to do the right thing, that's all that matters. So yeah, it's um, I mean it's an amazing process, and there's there'll be people now listening who haven't got kids who are going like shut up, mate, like you know, um, but it is difficult and it is testing and it and it is it does change your life, and and and, and I remember her being born. You know, to tie this all very nicely together, it, it did sort of bring back a lot of that trauma where I started thinking, but like, I'm changing who I am and what I do because I want to be a better man for my daughter. But then why was I not enough to then inspire that change in him and my father? Why, would, why, you know, why was I not enough? And I remember really struggling with that. But then sort of coming to that, that decision that because he was an idiot, that's why. And, and it wasn't you, it's him. But then it takes a long time to get to that, you know?
0: It does. My, uh, my son's biological grandfather left his daughter and, and uh you know his ex-wife when she was 5 and just basically up sticks and went and started a new family somewhere else never spoke to her again and i, I and that i think is in the root, root of her trauma that i don't think she's ever you know uh, addressed um but uh, i mean i told am like you know without <laughs> using too strong of words i'm like that is just a cowardly piece of shit you know that it's not anything to do with the daughter you, you have to be a complete shit bag to abandon a child, whether you, you know you had one, you never raised them or you raise them to a certain point, then you see the grass is greener somewhere else and you leave them. But yeah, I mean, imagine what that does to the child thinking, what did I do wrong?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is, that is unfortunately the way that, that carries you down a dark path for the rest of your life if you allow it. And it's about learning to manage that and understanding that and that self awareness that you can understand what you feel in a certain way because of this. So it's not always easy.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a great circle we've gone on this conversation. So I, uh, I want to go to some, some closing questions and then let you go. Um, so the first one I always love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be what we've discussed today or something completely different.
1: Uh, do you know what? So um, I've, I've not long finished the really, really brilliant book um, and it, it's a little bit of a medical textbook so you'll have to forgive me. There's no, um, there's no great um, uh, hero in this to follow but it, it's, it's called Lifestyle Medicine um, and it's, it's sort of edited by several um, doctors but uh, one of whom do I know called Michael Sagner who's an um, ex-Swedish special forces guy who then left and became a doctor of clinical psychology one of these huge great achievers in life and basically, this this book on lifestyle medicine it, it makes a point that uh, if I get a number wrong here, he's going to tell me off. But uh, <laughs> about eighty five percent of chronic illnesses um, in in Western society aren't necessarily curable, but they are completely preventable by a massively improved lifestyle. And and so it, it breaks it down into into um, into chapters of just different areas of our lives that, that we can we can um, in, improve from um, from dealing with anxiety to physical activity to depression to stress to, to, to um, fitness um, and self-management in lifestyle um, all these things you can do to that and, and it, a lot of it is quite clinical but I'm not a clinician but I could read and understand it so I, I sat and I read and, and, and got through it and, and understood you know all right this is what they're saying and it's just putting all the meat to the bones of the things you've already known. for me to lose weight I need to hydrate but why? And, and then it gives you all of this stuff, all these pointers, all these way, ways you can learn and do it. So that was fantastic. But I also highly recommend The Chimp Paradox. I'm sure a lot of people have read it. If you haven't read it, you need to read it. Absolutely fantastic about mind management, about understanding the different departments of the brain, how they work independently and then how they work together to produce the reactions that we have, why we have these reactions. So getting hold of the copy of The Chimp Paradox by Professor Steve Peters is, is essentially is a fantastic book.
0: Brilliant. Actually, I'm, I'm part of the way through that on audiobook, so I need to jump back on that. I just realised I didn't, I didn't listen to it recently, so I need to get back on it. Brilliant. All right, same question, but a film.
1: Oh, uh, uh, so films I've recently watched that I loved, obviously, I loved The Joker. I thought that was brilliant. I think the point of that is, is be kind to everybody because you never know what some, a person is going through. Um, and... and um, I think it was put in, in the American system. It highlights huge failings within the American system of mental health care. And um, have you seen it? It's, I've, oh, God, I, yeah,
0: yeah. I thought uh, it was incredible.
1: Yeah, I mean, Wacky and Phoenix take a bow. And I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a nerd. Like I've got, I've got, you know, I love all the Marvel stuff. I love the DC stuff. I'm, you know, I've got some comics. I, I think it's brilliant. I just, I, I just guess I love the old-fashioned heroes and villains story. And uh, and yeah, I thought the Joker was was absolutely fantastic. I thought. Um, um, yes, yeah, so the Joker was brilliant, and also I love a bit of escapism. So you know, I do love the Marvel movies as well. I Think they're all brilliant. I think that they're um, they're, they're really good. You know, they they are just good escapism, and sometimes it's worth just just um, just going and seeing that. I also watched um, the Martin Scorsese latest one. Oh God, what's it called? So the, the Irishman. Uh, the Irishman. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. Again, like just uh, I I love I, I love how. How it was directed, because it to me it wasn't directed like a movie. It didn't it? Didn't necessarily build tension? Like people are going to compare it to like the Marvel movies, okay? or everything is so overacted and overdramatized and huge explosions, and huge music, building to a grand finale of good versus evil. But but the 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 Irishman was almost presented to you completely objectively, wasn't it? Like there was no building of tension. Like the tension is was simply put within yourself because you understood the characters and likely what they were going to do. But but that it was just. It was so well done, but it absolutely wouldn't have worked if it wasn't those actors because it was so well acted that you believed them and you bought into it. You know, if it was any other cast, I don't think it would have worked, but but fanta- the Irishman was fantastic. So for the Irishman, the Joker, and if you just want a bit of escapism, go watch the new Marvel, or go watch the new Star Wars. They were, they, were, they were brilliant. Brilliant. So yeah. All right. So the same thing, but a documentary. Oh, I mean, I'm a big fan of any sort of... Um, documentary on on making a murderer <laughs> it's been brilliant on uh, on Netflix um, love love anything like that um, me and me and the missus, I, was, I imagine now most people do but their missus will, will every now and then put a documentary on and uh, I, actually I really remember watching the uh, the R Kelly documentary with with my missus the uh, uh, the other the other month and that was that was just incredible um, and while we're talking about breaking stigmas and people sort of coming forward and, and you say when you joined the, the a uniformed service you became so so painfully aware of how many other people had experienced trauma in their childhoods growing up and how it's becoming like more and more sort of frequently spoken about and then this arcane thing came out but I think the two sort of things tied together in the sense that actually like attitudes are changed towards a lot of the, the things that have been going on behind closed doors you know, with the Harvey Weinstein Me Too movement and people coming and talking about R. Kelly and what what he's been doing, all of a sudden all this stuff is coming to light um, because it's important that we talk about it and the stigma is changing. And these people who got away with this behaviour now they're not getting away with it anymore. And 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 actually, this stigma is is, is great that it it's breaking it, it's changing, but it's also so heartbreaking. And you sit there and you watch this 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 R. Kelly documentary from from all the girls that he's been abusing and what he's been up to. And, and it was just, it was just awful. I think about go on, when, when did he die? Ten years ago, something like that. There was a, a fairly prominent character in, 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 in England called Jimmy Savile. And Jimmy Savile died, right? And then, the, and then this huge, huge case just exploded of of stories of just how evil this man was. And the the. the I say amazing like it's a positive thing but the mind-blowing thing about about the whole situation was was that he was so overt that he became covert about it they actually he became like head of a children's hospital and yet he was an absolute he was a full-on pedophile and yet he was abusing these children and and sort of people knew what was going on but nobody wanted to speak out nobody knew how to speak out he was such a, a he was a game show host he was a game show host who, who, who ran children's hospitals and charities where he was just put with these vulnerable people where he took full sexual advantage of them and nobody was doing anything about it. And fast forward now to like R. Kelly. You know, I think right, really similar story with, with Bill Cosby. And, and Fast forward now to R. Kelly and these people are coming forward and saying, this man is evil. This is what he's been doing. And, and Harvey Weinstein and people are coming forward and, and that's not a bad thing. And I remember watching this R. Kelly documentary being shocked and sort of saying, actually, it's good that we're breaking down these stigmas that people are now coming forward, especially when the person involved is still alive. You know, because that's, that's the real tragedy about Jimmy Savile is he will never pay for his crimes. He died, and then this world exploded of these people coming forward saying, now that he's dead, I just want to point out this. And incredible. that's um, so
0: Yeah, it's horrendous. And it shows you how much fear these pedophiles instill in these children, you know, whether it's celebrities in some of these religions, um, you know, scout groups that, you know, that they're even as adults, they're still so traumatized they won't come forward.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I remember,
0: I remember Jim will fix it, the TV show when I was little. And every child wanted to be on his show and sit on his knee. And then now you look back, you're like, oh my God, yes, now I see it. Oh. I'm glad I never got that
1: show. Yeah, it's, a, it's insane, isn't it? It's absolutely insane. Like like he was a game, and he was on top of the pops, and he was on. Um, yeah, he had his own game show, "Jim Will Fix It," and he was in charge of the Children's Hospital and all of his charity work, and he was abusing hundreds of hundreds of children, and nothing was being done about it. Yeah. In, just hideous
0: awful well i mean that's a beautiful thing i think about the internet i mean there's obviously the negative side but there is so much power now to accessing information sharing information that i think is blowing open a lot of these these groups that got away with this horrendous stuff whether it's political you know religious whatever it is that that now it's like you can't get away with that shit anymore podcasting for example you get a person you know, on one end of the, the Atlantic, and then a person in, in England and have a conversation, and there's no fillers. We're going to talk about what we want to talk, and it's going to be available for everyone on planet Earth to listen to. Brilliant. Well, then, speaking of documentaries, there's one that I watched with Becky the other day called Don't Fuck with Cats. And if you like the, the crime drama ones, holy shit, it is heard it awful.
1: I've heard it's really, really good, yeah. But like, I, it, I mean, I'm in such a difficult place because I, I say, sound the same as you. I've been watch with my missus, and my missus has just been away, so we've not been able to binge watch yet. So, I'm actually going to her's tomorrow morning, so we get to go binge watch stuff together. And like, I've got like this list of stuff, like, it's like, it's like literally, babe, you're gonna have to bring breakfast, lunch, and dinner, to <laughs> like, and just sit there all day because we've got to watch There's the new season of You come out I couldn't be more excited for that the first one was incredible uh, uh a witcher uh don't probably cats has come out and, <laughs> and we i think we're on season four now with Mad Men. so we're like you know we've got got so much to get through i'm excited it's 100 on the list
0: that's funny so when people say netflix and chill I'd we'll be like no i actually mean netflix <laughs>
1: there's yeah. no
0: sex we're just going to be watching lots and lots of television
1: <laughs> but you and i didn't really grow up in the netflix and chill era did we like for us it wasn't netflix and chill it was imax and climax like you had to take <laughs> go to cinema you want- like you know you had to like put put a- put the moves on it but now these kids have got it easy like because when we sit down to what we actually want to watch it like no get off me I'm this is important this I- i'm gonna miss an important moment in this character's story arc i need to pay attention to this get off me.
0: That's funny, yeah. So, but then the, the, when I said the the Don't Fight with Cast is awful, I mean, it's awful to watch. An amazing, amazing documentary, but just it's so hard to watch. But that's what makes it so good.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I always think that the sign of a good of any good sort of art is something that can that can really make you feel uncomfortable. Look, look at that that scene in Joker when he's dancing down the stairs to Gary Glitter. Yes. Another really prominent paedophile. I know we and had yet- so
0: many in children's television when I was little.
1: I know, I, I like, it is so worrying in, in the UK that if you was an entertainer in the 70s or 80s, it's Operation Newtree, they called it, didn't they? And it was just so many, so, so many. It was such a prominent thing. And, and yeah, hideous. But um, yeah, and he's dancing down the stairs to, to Gary Glitter. And you're like, this scene is brilliant, but it's making me so uncomfortable because of everything that it is about. He's just killed a man. And he's dancing to Gary Glitter who was, you know, a paedophile, like, what is going on? You know, it was, uh, yeah, an unbelievable movie.
0: It yeah, it was. It was very, very good. All right. Well, then, next question then. Um, is there someone you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders and military of the world?
1: Yeah, so um, I guess I've got a couple, really. So i I'd definitely say Rob Ogden. So um, I'll speak to Rob and and, and I'll give him a note because um, I think he's got an incredible story um to to tell i think he'd be um he'd be fascinated i'm really lucky with some of the people who follow me on on my social media that that, um i've got some really fascinating and inspirational characters on there um i think probably the author or one of the editors of of of, um lifestyle medicine so dr michael sagner um i'll send you all the details of these people when, when we finish but but yeah like just fascinating people with fascinating stories and backgrounds who you could add so much good good quality co-
0: content to um, to what you're doing. Beautiful. When you were talking about Dr. Sagan, I was thinking the same thing. It's funny. I got a, a message from a fireman in Australia, Western Australia, and uh, one of his comments was you know, he, he loved the podcast and he keeps waiting for me to run out of good guests, but I never do. And I told him, like, dude, there are so many amazing people on planet Earth, but we just keep getting fed the freaking ding-dongs of the world you yeah. know what i mean so, yeah yeah yes. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. so it's it's so i love these conversations i love this this question i threw in a couple of years ago because it does it opens the doors to if i get someone who i respect and they're like you have to listen to or, you know speak to this person i know i have to speak to that person because that's another inspiring person out there so yeah both of those would be amazing thank you
1: you're welcome i'll speak to both of them fantastic
0: all right so the last question before we talk about where we can find you um, what do you do to decompress?
1: Oh, so I've got the gym. I've got a great gym. Um, and I used to have, as many um, servicemen do, had a really negative coping mechanism of drinking. But I gave up drinking about a year ago. I found I was going to do laddie' It's given me a lot of problems. But I find getting to the gym, pump my iron, running, like really physically exert myself. Not just doing your 12 to 15 reps of three, three to five sets, but actually smashing some weights like I mean it, training hard like I mean it. Um, eating well and and um, and and spending some really quality time with my little girl and my, and my missus, I find has, has really helped these stress me. And um, definitely, there's times when I've, I've I've felt like it's getting too much. And and those sort of three things combined have really helped sort of keep keep me together.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, I think we have very similar uh, coping mechanisms in a good way. Um, all right. So then, the last thing: if people want to reach out to you, where can they find you online?
1: So um, I, my preferred usage is via Instagram, where I am James Elliot Official, and Elliot is E W L I O T. So yeah, James Elliot Official on my on my Instagram there, and I'm 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 very active on there. So if people do want to chat, or people do want to ask some questions, or want to follow, or want to collab, or want to chat, or whatever. Then, then there there I am.
0: Brilliant, James. I just want to say thank you so much. It's been a, an amazing conversation. So many topics that we've we've touched on today. Um, and uh, I just really appreciate you being so generous with your time and talking today
1: it's been my absolute pleasure, thanks very much for having me